Well, hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, we got to start this week where we started last week. Uh, the saga continues uh, on science standards. We had a vote in the House Education Committee. You were there for all the drama. Give us the rundown, Clark. Yeah, just to cut to the chase, the House Education Committee once again uh, removed references to climate change, global warming, fossil fuels, and human impact on the environment from a proposed slate of new science standards, basically science standards that would be taught in K-12 public schools and charters throughout the state of Idaho. And this is kind of the third year that the House Mm -hmm. Education Committee uh, has been wrestling with this issue. As we talked about last week, uh, just a quick review. Uh, Last week, there were two days of public hearings. Uh, Public testimony was unanimous in support of teaching full, uncensored science standards to students with references to climate change left intact. Every person who came to the State House. Uh, asked the legislature to do that. Most of the people we heard from were students and teachers. They did not vote last week. They put that off till the middle of this week, came back in, and uh, they removed one standard in full, and then they removed all, it's called supporting content, mm-hmm. but it's right. basically um, paragraphs and explanations and further research that accompany almost every standard. And so in that regard, The way I look at it is House Education Committee went further than last year in terms of the amount of supporting content, the amount of overall material that they removed from what is a 75-page or so document that these standards are are contained in, Kevin. Right, right. And you mentioned, I mean, it's third year of this debate. This is the third year that some of these legislators have been dealing with this issue. You were in the room personally. I was watching online, and I could just kind of sense, you know, there there are some short tempers about this now. It feels like, you know, some legislators are, are getting a little bit testy about having to deal with this and a, a lot of a lot of back and forth about what are we doing as a legislature and are we undermining our teachers? Uh, you know, you, you got a flavor of that, didn't you? Yeah, the vote was almost a party line vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, House Education, I believe, is the largest committee In uh, the legislature, there are 16 members. The vote was 12 to 4. And what we saw was uh, Boise Republican Representative Patrick McDonald. He's the committee's vice chair. He was the only Republican to join the Democrats in voting to essentially... He wanted the standards in full, as the three Democrats did. And some of the concern that we heard from the Democrats was... For three years in a row, we've asked these teachers, and and where the standards came from is a group of about 19 to 20 of the state's most awarded science teachers. Uh, These include things like the uh, presidential award winners Mm -hmm. in math and science. Multiple uh, folks with the presidential award were on this committee. They developed the science standards, uh, personalized them for Idaho. They've done that each of the last three years. After last year's legislative session, they went back and reworked uh, and sort of this is my read on it, but sort of softened some of the language about climate change and human impact on the environment. Those came back up for the vote this year. And, and yeah, some of the Democrats said, listen, we have this air of distrust and, and these uh, lack of morale within the teaching fields. And, and we sort of see that with the turnover numbers mm-hmm. and, and the issues of, of, of filling certain hard-to-fill positions. And Democrats, in particular, Garden City Democratic Representative John McCrosty, who himself is a teacher, said, listen, there's an era of distrust with our teachers. 
it looked like it had been getting a little bit better, but we still have morale problems, and doing things like this doesn't help the issue. Uh, but Representative McCrosty did not have the votes to pass the full science standards. Instead, Representative Scott Syme, a Caldwell Republican, had more than enough votes to remove the one standard and all supporting content. And so just real quickly, when we talk about supporting content, I want to read one example of something that was removed. It was short. Uh, we'll just get it uh, real quick. But it says, quote, Current scientific models indicate that human activities, such as the release of greenhouse gases from fossil fuel combustion, are the primary factors in the measured rise in the Earth's mean surface temperature, end, end quote. That, that's kind of what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. That's kind of reflective of some of the material that was removed. But even though House Education took this big step, they don't have the final word, Kevin. As you know, the Senate Education Committee gets a say. Right. This whole process begins across the rotunda on the Senate side. I would assume, uh, based on what we saw last year, I would assume another round of public hearings on the Senate side. We don't have a timetable on when the Senate Education Committee is going to take this up. But uh, they have the last word, and they basically they have veto power over everything that happened in the House Education Committee this week. Uh, if Senate Education approves the rule in full with all of the language intact, including all of these uh, all of these sections that have been deleted, and you, and you did the math, it was about a dozen pages of of content that were were deleted. It's all back. It all becomes the rule that then has the force of law and becomes the science standards uh, across the state for the next several years. That's so, yeah, there was a lot of drama. There were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of tension within the House Education Committee, but it may, in the end, it may not turn out to amount to anything if Senate Education Committee opts to go another course. We don't know what's going to happen in Senate Education, and we don't know when it's going to happen, but obviously we'll, we'll be there when it happens. Yeah, I, I don't know... Uh, what Senate education is going to do, I think it's very premature to try and handicap that or or, or, or predict that. Uh, I do expect that they will take it up sooner rather than later. They certainly will be taking it up uh, this legislative session. And just a couple of housekeeping items before we move on. When we talk about science standards, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ibarra, really described these as a baseline or a minimum of what our students are expected to be able uh, to know and do uh, at the end of a, basically during a given uh, term in the school year. And so uh, local school districts are still allowed to set their own curricula uh, at the local level, and uh, the standards are kind of a minimum. There was one interesting email that Representative McCrosty read right before the vote, and it came from a science teacher named Jason George, uh, who teaches at Vision Charter School. I believe he's one of the presidential award winners uh, who has developed these science standards. And he said the reason that these standards are important and that the supporting content is important is especially when you look at the elementary school level, a lot of these teachers uh, may have more sort of a general education expertise and uh, be certified as teachers but not have the specific content knowledge that maybe a high school chemistry teacher who right. specializes in that would have. And so Jason had said, that's where the supporting content comes in handy. That's where it's important. That elementary school teacher who's teaching four, five, six different subjects throughout the day may not be a specialist uh, in earth sciences or physical sciences. And so that supporting content can guide that teacher, especially if that's a young teacher. Right, provides that teacher with sort of the underpinning to explain these concepts in a class and kind of, you know, 
the framework to, to use to build a lesson plan around. So, Yeah, so that's where that came from. The debate continues on. We will continue to follow it. If you do need to get caught up, head over to our homepage, idahoednews.org, and scroll down about halfway on the homepage. Uh, look for our coverage of the House Education Committee, again, removing references uh, to climate change. We'll cover that in the future and give you guys an update as soon as we know more or as soon as we hear the Senate schedule. I do want to shift gears, Kevin. A couple of big stories uh, that you tackled this week. Let's start with Idaho's high school graduation rates. This is one of those closely followed metrics. We have new numbers. What do they say? Well, they don't say much different than what we've already heard. And uh, it was a story that I followed a little bit this week. Jennifer Swindell did most of the reporting. But what we, what we saw is that the latest round of high school graduation numbers for the state Pretty much what we saw a year ago. When you when you round it up, it's 79.7% of students graduating. And when you think about it in terms of real students, that's about 18,000 or so uh, high school students graduating on time. But about 4,000 students did not. And and that becomes a question of you know where did they go in the system, or, or are they, you know, are, are they dropouts or not? So yep. Um, so that. That's the the crux of it. The numbers are pretty much where they've been. We don't know where that stacks up nationally because we don't have the latest round of national rankings, but Idaho ranked 40th in the nation in 2016. So, you know, we'll see where that ends up. I thought the political reactions on these numbers were were telling, both from uh, Superintendent Ibarra and, and from Jeff Dillon. So State Superintendent Ibarra, we reached out for comment uh, early Wednesday. Uh, Ibarra's camp put out a, a press release late yeah. Wednesday afternoon. Uh, I found it scrolling around on my phone because I don't have a life. And um, the, the press release, it, it talked a little bit about uh, some of the at-risk populations, and we, we saw that. We, when you break down by school and by district, you can see that there's definitely some some gaps and some, you know, some lower performance, as you would expect in the virtual high schools, the virtual charters, and the alternative high schools. But Ibarra's tone was emphasizing that there was a slight improvement in these scores. And she slight, had to really do some long you, math. You, you got to do some long division to get to the slight improvement. And you uh, did the math. What did it we, say? Well, her math is we went from 6966 percent in 2016 to 69.67% in 2017. That is a difference of 0.01%. And spread across a student population of 20,000 or so students, that amounts to two kids. That's that's how small this difference is. So uh, you're, you're parsing the numbers a little bit to, to call this a slight improvement. Two kids or a rounding error or a data entry error. Well, it, it, it's so close that, you know, yeah, you know, the numbers are flat or virtually flat, no matter how you look at it. So that was, and the state has a goal, right? In in terms of where they want to get, they want to get above ninety percent. They want to get to ninety five percent, and that at is this a rate, very ambitious goal. We will not do it in my lifetime. Uh, it would be it would take a while to get there <laughs> at, at that at this current rate. Ninety five percent is a very ambitious goal, right. and we've talked about this before. I mean. No state is hitting 95% in, in graduation rates. So so the state board has set a very high bar. Uh, so the, the improvement that Ibarra talked about is not going to uh, get us very far very fast. Her Jeff- opponent, though, mm-hmm. her yeah. challenger, Wilder Superintendent Jeff Dillon, who's opposing Sherry Ibarra in the May Republican primary, 
also kind of weighed into this and also had uh, well what happened uh, uh, okay. yeah. the numbers the state showed suggested that Wilder had one of the lowest graduation rates in the state right so the numbers that we got on Wednesday indicated that Wilder High School had a graduation rate of just under 70 percent so you're talking about 10 percentage points lower than the state average um, Jeff Dillon the superintendent of the Wilder district and and Sherry Barr's opponent in the Republican primary. On Thursday, he contacted Idaho Education News. He talked to Jennifer Swindell and said that um, uh, he thinks that their numbers are quite a bit higher. He blames it on a reporting error uh, by the principal in the high school, that uh, they didn't appeal as many of these uh, dropouts as they should have or could have. And he believes that if they'd been appealed and, you know, this appeals process is complicated, but you can appeal if you're a school and get the state to take a a dropout, yeah. if you will, yeah. off of the rolls, and no longer the student is no longer counted as a dropout. If you can prove that the student may have left the state or went elsewhere in the system somewhere, yeah. so his claim, uh, uh, Dylan's claim, is that if you do all of that, their graduation rate is not. 69 percent but more uh but above 90 percent and in fairness uh while there's uh, graduation rates have been higher in previous years they've, they've been, been above, ahead of the state average. they've been above 80 percent for the past three years so this number this dip to 70 percent it's you know it's lower than they've recorded in the previous three years so you had you, you had a bar clinging to a very small increase you had uh dylan kind of uh, saying that the numbers aren't complete, they don't tell the whole story, that uh, the, the Wilder High School should have appealed more of these. And it kind of assumes that all of these appeals would have been upheld, and that doesn't always happen. No, and the fact is, Wilder did participate in the appeals process. For Jeff three, Dillon is for saying... For three kids. For three kids. Jeff Dillon is saying it should have been 10 kids, and so they did participate in the appeals process. For three kids. Some of those initial appeals were rejected. Right. He's saying that there were more that should have been counted. Uh, at this point, the appeals window has closed, and the official state numbers are what the official state numbers are. Jeff Dillon says that there was a data entry error. So there's sort of two, two sides of the story, and you can dig into that. Um, right, and, and I think part of why we wanted to do the story, why Jennifer did the story that we did on Thursday, was by his own admission, uh, Dillon says he's going to use both sets of numbers on the campaign trail. So I think... In the interest of helping voters yeah. parse this out and make sense of this all, we wanted to get those numbers out and get his explanation, his side of the story out, why why the state is saying 69%, why he's claiming that it's more like 90%, uh, you know, so voters can arrive at their own conclusions. Because we may well hear about this a considerable amount between now and we May. We will. I mean, I'm sure as, the, as we get closer to the May 15th primary and... Both candidates' records are put under scrutiny. You know, the most you can do in terms of scrutinizing, uh, you know, Jeff Dillon's record is to look at what's happened in the Wilder School District. So, you know, I think these numbers are going to resurface between now and May fifteenth. All right, we will uh, we'll continue to follow that. We'll continue to follow that campaign as we draw closer and closer to that important May primary. Another big story that I want to get to, Kevin, and this has to do with part of Idaho's. Essentially, the accountability plan uh, in complying with the federal Every Student Succeeds Act. Uh, There's been an interesting proposal that the state is moving forward about incorporating student feedback into uh, the accountability plan. You followed the State Board of Education this week. A little bit of, this has become a little bit of a ticklish issue, a little bit of a controversy Mm -hmm. surrounding 
the student survey. Explain the controversy and then what the state's going to end up doing. Okay. So what's going to happen next now is uh, the student survey, which is a component of the state's accountability plan. Yep. It's going to be used as one metric to try to identify low-performing schools. Student survey is a go. And starting in early April, uh, students are going to see those surveys. They're going to go out through the end of the school year, basically, through the end of May. Um, you've written about this before. Um, there's been some controversy about the idea of doing a student survey and also about the vendor. And there's been a lot of back and forth about which vendor and what kind of tests, what kind of survey, what kind of questions. Uh, there was blowback about the initial proposal for a vendor. Uh, some school superintendents, some administrators didn't like the wording that they were seeing in the uh, the first vendor's survey. They felt like the, the questions were loaded and they felt like it was going to be, uh, you know, they didn't feel like it was going to be a fair survey. The state board this week decided to go ahead and formalize a relationship with a different vendor who will submit a different survey. Not everybody's on board with that survey either. The Boise School District, most notably, uh, said that they've looked over the wording in this, uh, this student engagement survey. They're not happy with it either. They don't think that it's any better. Um, lots of interesting stuff. The, the board meeting on Wednesday was fairly pro forma. It only took about 20 minutes to make the change. But reading the, uh, the packet of materials yeah. that went to the state board before Wednesday's meeting and getting a sense of some of the feedback that uh, the state board members read, presumably, because they had it, before voting unanimously to switch vendors. It was very interesting. There were questions about, is this the right vendor? Uh, more, uh, more comments in favor of switching to this second vendor than, than opposed, but not unanimous by any stretch. And some concerns were raised about whether the, what's going to happen with this survey, what's going to happen with this data. The results will be public, not to the extent that fourth grader Clark Corbin says this about his teacher, uh, Mrs. Uh, Nancy, but we will have aggregate uh, data on what the survey results say, right? Right, right. The state is not going to out your mean old no. Mrs. Nancy for whatever she said or did in, in your fourth grade class. But we will get aggregated data that gives us a sense of what kids are saying about their schools and that, you know, there was some concern, and a couple of superintendents uh, voiced those concerns in emails to the state board. Uh, a couple of them, you know, mentioned us by name and said, you know, what's going to happen when these uh, survey results come, come forward and it's going to make us look bad and it's a disaster waiting to happen, according to one superintendent. Um, another one, uh, Jeff Thomas from the Madison District, said that the results could be weaponized and used against schools, and it would be another uh, tool to 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 criticize and and you know castigate the school system. So you know, we will see what the results are from the student survey. We will report on the student yeah. uh, survey results. They're they're in the public record. Uh, it's in the public interest. We'll uh, we'll have the results. We'll look at the results. We'll help uh, readers and voters and patrons understand what the kids had to say. Bear in mind in this whole accountability plan, uh, the student surveys are a small piece of a. Of, of one a of bigger many. accountability yes. plan. Yes. And, you know, as we've mentioned several times here, Idaho does not have a school accountability plan, hasn't had one for several years. So this is all part of a rollout of a plan that's been in the works for several years. So, yes, we'll watch the student surveys. We'll see what uh, the kids have to say. 
and we'll put it in the broader context of this entire accountability plan. Sure, we'll put the context in there, but ideally, I think the people that are pushing for this are thinking that these student surveys will give educators, taxpayers, the public, parents insight into what's happening at their local school level, and that you know, oh my goodness, the results may be useful, that we yeah. may be able to uh, learn something about what's going on and then either celebrate and replicate best practices, what's working, or target things that are maybe areas of concern and nip those in the bud. Right, um, and, I, and I think you, that comes through too. It doesn't have the, to be this gotcha comments. moment. Right, and I think that also comes through in the public comments that some of the uh, school administrators, when they weighed in on which survey, which survey method to use, are looking for something that will provide some constructive feedback. So, and I think everybody can can get behind that. Uh, at the end, you do want some feedback in this process that's going to help improve the schools, uh, help uh, help share some best practices. I mean, that's the whole point of doing the survey is to try to get some some far-reaching feedback and, and give some sense about where to go from here. Yeah, for sure. We will continue to watch that. Uh, you mentioned April, but that's going to be rolled out this school year, just yeah. a, a, less than two months away. You mentioned we had not had an accountability plan at any point during Sherry Ybarra's tenure as state superintendent. This is the brand new accountability plan. It is being rolled out for the first time this school year. Like you said, student surveys are one of several different metrics uh, that will be used to uh, paint this data dashboard, they're calling it, but a lot more public data on schools will be available. But also, it will be a small component used to identify, I think, as you mentioned, the lowest performing public schools in the state. So those schools will be identified, but along with being identified, those schools will be eligible for uh, additional resources and support uh, and interventions designed to help get those schools back on track. Mm -hmm. So it isn't, yeah. in an ideal world, it isn't just punitive in measure, right. uh, in, in, in purpose, you know. Right. It's um, not identifying low-performing schools to, you know, to, to pillory those schools. It's supposed to then provide some extra help and some guidance and some resources to try to get the low-performing schools uh, to to improve, to, to improve their performance. All right. One last topic I want to get to uh, this week. Kevin, congratulations are in order. We just found out last night uh, that you have won a fellowship from the Education Writers Association. But tell me a little bit about this and then tell me a little bit about how this fellowship is going to enable a huge project for you in the year ahead. Right. And that's the part that's really exciting to me. Um, and thank you for, for the... Um, the EWA fellowship is going to help me and help us uh, continue a project that I started back in December. I, I took a, a deep look at Idaho's 60% goal. What's going on here? Why is the state... Uh, struggling to improve its post-secondary completion rates when this has been our top priority as an education uh, priority for several years. And I felt like the first phase of the project, I feel like we covered some new ground. I think we kind of quantified how much money the state is spending. You broke huge news in adding up the the $100 million figure. Right. We, we looked at the math. We looked at some of the affordability issues that are really going to affect whether whether students continue their education after high school. Uh, we looked kind of at the long view, uh, why this is going to take years and a lot more money probably to move those numbers towards the 60%. So I felt like it was a good, um, I felt like we covered some good ground. I felt like it was a good introduction to it. But even as I finished the series, I felt like there was more to say and more to write about. And what, what the EWA Fellowship will help us do 
is get out into rural Idaho. Um, look at what's going on in terms of getting uh, kids, uh, maybe uh, children in, in high poverty households, uh, children of color, uh, you know, you're at risk student populations. How do you get uh, high school students in those demographic groups to consider what their options are beyond high school? Because I think there's a widespread recognition in Idaho right now that to get to the 60% goal, you're going to have to reach out to more of those students. We had a study even this week, some numbers released about the Advanced Opportunities Program that acknowledged you have uh, demographic gaps. You have uh, children in poverty aren't taking advantage of this program as readily. You have children of color not taking advantage of these programs. So we know the gaps exist. And what I'm excited about trying to do uh, thanks to EWA's support, is to get out in the communities and try to figure out why and try to figure out are there ways to get there. Yeah. And what I'm hoping to do as well is look beyond Idaho, uh, do some travel you know, to other rural states and try to get a sense of what is being tried elsewhere and what's, uh, you know, are there best practices? Are there states that are further along in this process than Idaho that have been at this for you know, 10 or 15 years and have lessons uh, that Idaho could, could take and, you know, and learn from. So I'm really excited to continue this project. It, it, the, the fellowship really commits us to continuing this project. I've wanted to continue it. Uh, it gives us some financial backing. It gives us, uh, gives us a deadline. Journalists love deadlines. So this forces us to, to work on it. It's, it's really exciting. It was, it was great news to get this fellowship because I think it, it's going to force us and, and enable us to do some really good journalism here in 2018 uh, on a project that's very important uh, to the state and a project that really fascinates me. I've, I've been really interested in trying to, to sort through this. Congratulations of, of the highest order are, are absolutely in order, uh, and, and I want people to join me in congratulating you on this. But, Kevin, this is a huge day for you. This is a huge day for Idaho Education yes. News. But this is a huge day for Idaho because along with this fellowship um, – Idaho and its 60% goal is going to get some national attention. You're going to shine kind of a national spotlight uh, on this issue. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You shared with our staff last night, and you had a write-up this morning, but uh, talk a little bit about how uh, this really p pushes it to a new level uh, yeah. and what that means. I mean, on, on kind of on a personal level, I mean, we're going to be uh, alongside some you know, some big name uh, news outlets. I mean, there's a writer who writes for The Atlantic, who was one of the fellows, uh, NPR, uh, Texas Tribune, probably one of the most fantastic long and amazing journalism. online only publication, the kind of online only publication that we all kind of aspire to get to at some point. Um, you know, the Tennessee and the paper in Nashville, um, you know, some, some big yeah, you know, some big heavy hitters. So it's going to be kind of uh, exciting and you know a little bit humbling to be working uh, on a fellowship alongside uh, alongside those folks. But Idaho's not alone in trying to get to the sixty percent goal. Uh, a lot of states have similar goals, some higher, some lower, and they do the math a little bit differently. This idea of trying to improve post secondary rates is hardly unique to Idaho, and I think maybe that's part of why EWA is interested in us continuing our work on it in Idaho. And maybe uh, look at it from you know beyond our borders to more of a, a rural education topic. So, uh, really excited to dive in. It's going to be a, a fun project. I'm absolutely looking forward to it. I'm actually absolutely looking forward to the national exposure that you will be able to give to Idaho and its go on rate and the barriers 
uh, to that and potential solutions that you uncover. We are just getting started. You will have so much more to announce and to share with our readers and our extra credit listeners uh, in the weeks and the months to come. And we will share it on our podcast and we will share it uh, on our social media channels and, and, and on our homepage. And, and two things real quick. Uh, if you're listening to this, as I say, we're going to try to get out into rural Idaho. So if you're, if you're a, a teacher, uh, an advisor, a parent, a student, and you've got a story that you'd like to tell, uh, send me an email. Uh, find the email address on our website at idahoednews.org. I'm looking forward to getting out into the field. Also, uh, one of the things we're going to try to do, well, we're, one of the things we're going to do with, with EWA's support is uh, we're going to figure out some sort of a community meeting, some sort of a town hall, when we get this project done, when we get it reported, to try to get people together. I mean, part of what's really interesting about all of this is we're at a crossroads as a state. We're going to have a new governor at the end of this year. Uh, we're going to have three new college and university presidents sometime in the next few months. Uh, so a lot of changeover. And, you know, this is an important issue to discuss, especially now because you've got some new, new people coming into leadership. And we don't know who those folks are yet, but uh, we do know that there's going to be a changing of the guard. So I think it's such an opportune time to continue this discussion to kind of facilitate this discussion. So stay tuned. We'll have details on that a few months down the road, but uh, hope to see some of you there. All right. That gets us all caught up. Thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your day to listen to the podcast. We always have a lot of fun on Extra Credit exploring this complex intersection of education policy and education politics. Uh, as always, I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.